welcome. Thanks for listening in. This is Vernon Mann with tales of TV news coverage in the dim and distant past before mobiles and the internet. The first time I follow a royal is in 1981. The Prince of Wales is off on a lengthy tour of New Zealand, Australia and a couple of other countries. We don't normally track Charlie. He doesn't have the box office appeal of the Queen. But in three months' time, he's getting hitched to Diana Spencer. So he's hot property right now. We, me and the Royal Correspondent, fly to New Zealand via Los Angeles Business Class. There are only two of us. The tape editor's flying later and we've booked an Australian camera crew. We get to Los Angeles Airport early evening and have four hours or so before the onward Air New Zealand flight to Auckland. The Royal Correspondent says we just have time for dinner at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Whoa, I was preparing for burgers and boredom at the airport. The Beverly Hills Hotel is on Sunset Boulevard, 13 and a half miles away. It was opened on May the 12th, 1952, before Beverly Hills existed even as a city. Its motto was, and still is, and I quote, Guests are entitled to the best of everything regardless of cost. I take a photo for our accountants. The hotel was painted pink in 1948, apparently to complement the sunset. We pull up outside the Pink Palace and head for the Polo Lounge, the epicentre of power dining in L.A., and the preferred place to be for legendary stars and Hollywood dealers. That's what they say in their brochures. It appears the stars are staying at home tonight, or maybe coming out later. The restaurant is nearly empty. It's a bit on the early side, I guess. As we sip our massive martinis, we do spot a possible Hollywood person, a small, completely bald guy in his 70s, at a table with a blonde washed with jewellery, aged about 30. We speculate about them for a minute or two, Hollywood big shot or small-time poser, we'll never know. The head waiter approaches our table and, hearing our accents, asks the inevitable question, where are you from? England, of course, is the reply. Gee, how long you been over here? About an hour. Gee, how long are you staying, gents? Uh, We're leaving in about three hours. Gee, and where are you going next? San Francisco, maybe? Texas? New Zealand. Gee, that's great. Now what are you going to eat with us tonight? We give him an order. Steak. What else? and they're big and juicy and good. As he clears our plates later, the waiter asks, where exactly is New Zealand? And he's gobsmacked when we tell him, even more surprised when we say, it's likely where he gets his lamb from. We send him postcards from New Zealand when we get there with sheep on. It's a very, very long way to New Zealand. We have a brandy nightcap after boarding and doze for most of the flight, waking up as they tell us we're approaching Auckland. And would we kindly mind closing our eyes as they spray us with insecticide? A flight attendant with a big can in each hand drenches everyone, even us in business class. In Auckland the next day we meet up with a crew and attend a briefing from a New Zealand government press officer. Lots of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. He's a nice guy, but even he is phased by the larger-than-life Fleet Street photographers and other royal snappers who follow the royals for a living. We have to get really close to the prince, one tells the press guy. We know what the rules are, but don't get too upset if we break them. It's not personal, just business. On the first day of the tour, Prince Charles does a walkabout. Now, this is not a wandering Aborigine-style walkabout. It's a carefully policed and well-defined path, each side marked with portable iron railings to stop people getting too close. As British journalists officially accredited to the tour, we and some local media are allowed inside the gates, but we have to keep our distance. 
The crowds are huge, the gates wobbling as people lean in to try and touch the royal personage. We're in front of him, filming as he smiles and waves and walks towards us. The Fleet Street snappers, the regulation one metre distant, link arms as they shuffle backwards, an impenetrable line which prevents the local boys getting good close-ups. They're very cross. A young Auckland photographer, showing initiative, stands on an upturned milk crate behind the Fleet Street mob to give him some elevation in the scrum. The Fleet Street boys trample all over him, clicking away all the while. The lad falls to the ground, his camera kit smashing on the tarmac, as is his face. There are screams of outrage, the masses are appalled, the police angry as they drag the poor bleeding boy through the barriers. Our lads continue their backwards march, unfazed. I don't think they even noticed what's happened. And that about sets the tone for the rest of the tour. We're branded animals by the Auckland Press. Local television puts together a half-hour documentary about our, quote, bestial behaviour. I think I'm in it. Not for being beastly, of course, just for being there. There's a Cold War sort of atmosphere now. Nobody likes us, not that we care. The Fleet Street boys wind up the local policeman just for fun. One tells an officer, We really like your Kiwi girls, mate. They're so easy to pick up and so delightfully old-fashioned in bed. He gets a furious stamp on his foot. On one of the endless walkabouts, the boys have dolled up four local girls to look like Lady Di, haircuts and all. The lookalikes rush to the barriers, as they're being paid to do, just as Charles is about to pass. He can't ignore them. They shout, we love you, we love you. The prince goes red. He's not sure how to react. His smile is more of a grimace. The snappers have their front page. We have a nice little film sequence. We leave the big city and head into the great unknown. Well, to us anyway. Christchurch, Dunedin, places like that. One of my roles is to make sure the crew are fed and watered and I volunteer to find a restaurant for the whole UK Rat Pack, about a dozen of us. In the great unknown, people eat supper early, and the lights are all out by nine. Honestly. I go into what appears to be a decent restaurant one lunchtime, and say, I want to book a table for twelve about nine o'clock. Sorry, mate, says the proprietor. We close at seven, last orders at six. I patiently explain that we're all on expenses, and we'll spend a shed load of money on food and booze. Sorry, mate, you'll have to bring your own grog. We don't sell it. And anyway, we shut at seven. He won't budge. I strike gold at the third restaurant, even though he says it'll be good if we're all out by ten. He'll be lucky. The Kiwis have some decent wine, even in 1982, but finding it is hard. It takes me more than an hour to find someone who has three cases to sell. Not all for tonight, of course. Don't be silly. We have two nights here. One day there's a lunch at a winery. The prince is eating inside with officials. There's a barbecue outside for the media. One of the plain-clothes security guys latches on to Arthur Edwards, famous Sun newspaper royal photographer. The security man is a wine buff. Try this one, Arthur, he says, offering a glass of red. Arthur obliges, knocks it back in one. Nice, he says. You will really like this one, Arthur. Bright blackberries, robust. Yeah, nice, says Arthur, draining the second glass. Now this one is really special, the wine bore says. Nice, says Arthur, taking a sip. What do you think of that, insists the cop. Look, says Arthur, I've said it's nice. What do you want, handstands and bloody cartwheels? Travelling with royalty, you get privileged access to all the tourist spots, hot springs, geysers and the like. You don't have to queue or pay to get in, but there's no escape from the crowds. The Royal New Zealand Air Force flies to a couple of the more remote locations. You sit facing the tail of the aircraft. It's a bit weird. 
I doze off on one leg, leg of the flight that is, not on one leg. I half open one eye in a bit of turbulence and nearly die of heart failure. We're inches away from snow-covered rock. It's Mount Cook, their highest mountain. The pilot is giving us an exclusive tour, circling the peak a couple of times and getting in a shade too close, because he can and knows he's got media on board. Terrific and scary and something most New Zealanders will never experience. Thank you, New Zealand Air Force. Nine years later, the top falls off the mountain, shrinking its height by 30 metres. This tour is an early outing for our new electronic camera. We're recording on tape, not film, so no processing. Lots of time saved. Our filmed reports used to air the night after they were shot, after the fleet suit reports had appeared in the morning papers. Now they're shown on the news the same night, before the next morning's papers. I remind my newspaper colleagues of this as they confer on the back of the press bus, polishing their quotes, not making them up, I hasten to clarify, just embellishing them a bit to make them more dramatic. With great reluctance, they ask if they can listen to our recordings so they can get the quotes right. Uh, Things won't be the same from now on, one of them complained. The tour is nearing its end. It's been a strange one, with the New Zealand media declaring war on us, the British press rat pack, and the Prince of Wales not quite, we sensed, his normal self. Well, he has got a wedding coming up. A couple of months later, the Daily Mail published handwritten note the Prince sent to a friend who's passed it on to the newspaper, no doubt for a considerable amount of money. He says he is, quote, fed up with the amount of nonsensical rubbish I take all day, every day, and goes on, the real problem is trying to keep up my enthusiasm. Poor bugger, he's got Australia next. No rubbish there, mate. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. This is Vernon Mann. Bye for now. Thank you.